Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas Hello and welcome back once again to uh, Trademark Belfast podcast. This is episode four, I think, of our uh, of our delve into the stock market entitled What the Fuck is the Stock Market? We're joined again today by Dr. Sean Byers and Stuart McGill, who are going to give us their um, insights into the broad understanding of what the stock market's used for and what capital markets are for and what they're not for. And we'll be doing a little bit of history, a little bit of politics, a little bit of theory maybe thrown in and we'll see where we end up. Same as last time, we're going to start off with some personal insights, if people have any, into what's going on at the moment, kind of a contemporary look at the stock market and what's going on. I know that Stuart wants to come in with something. In terms of uh, my own reading of what's going on economically at the moment, it's been fascinating to watch uh, the stories, particularly in the capitalist press, about the, this global chip or microchip shortage, which is causing serious damage to lots of different manufacturing processes and supply chains around the world. Uh, General Motors have halted uh, output at most of its North American plants for, for two, three weeks. Ford and Toyota are in trouble. There's also labour shortages. The CBI in Britain have said that it's going to last at least two years. There's, there's shortages in fruit pickers and meat processors, livestock, factory workers, and of course, HGV drivers. Um, some branches of McDonald's in America are employing children now, 14-year-olds. And they're also talking about using prisoners to, to get production back up. So capitalism is in a parlous state, as usual. And so you'd think then at that point, the wages would need to rise to attract labour. And so as wages rise, we're told, so will inflation, because there's too much money chasing too few goods. So the inflation bogeyman is well and truly back in some in some areas, at least. And there's a couple of things here that are interesting. One is the idea that wages going up is going to be the cause of inflation, that idea, which is a real 1980s kind of monetarist factor idea, when at the same time, the EU and the Brits and the Yanks have been creating trillions of new money and, and throwing it into the toilet that is the stock market. Somehow that's not the cause of inflation, but workers getting a few extra quid in their pay packets might be. Um, and it highlights, of course, something that we may talk about again on a future podcast, which is that inflation is a site of class struggle, to quote a good friend of ours, Conor McKay. And if inflation is the rate at which, you know, the value or wealth that you hold is eroded over time, then, and if inflation can seriously erode your wealth, the people most afraid about that are people who hold that wealth in paper form. And that's, of course, the stock market. And that's the real fear, of course, not that milk and bread is going to go up. They couldn't give a fuck about that, but rather the value of their wealth might go down. Um, but the interesting thing is, and I'll finish on this, is, is, is the row in the capitalist press on warnings about inflation. Because as I said, on the one hand, you've got these 1980s monetarists who learned their economics from Milton Friedman, whining about the inevitability of wage price inflation. Um, and on the other side, you've got people like Rishi Sunak and that class of capitalists who've learned a bit since the 1980s. Uh, and there was a great um, debate in, I think it was Bloomberg or the FT or one of those uh, papers I read recently. And, and the quote was, um, the wage price spiral happened when unionised workers were a third of the UK labour force when they had real power. The steady erosion of workers' rights and Amazon have made that a distant memory. So these modern capitalists get it. They know that there's no real threat of inflation from wage price rises, but that doesn't mean they're going to let it happen. So just in case, if inflation does get too hot, we know the government aren't short tools to take the heat out of the economy. Like, for instance, recognising that if wages do go up, there might be a, you know, there might be a, a, a rise in inflation. Um, so what we'll do is we'll just increase national insurance contributions and we'll pull money out 
of the economy that way by making sure workers have less money. Um, and that leads us on to another point, which we're not going to discuss, but to remind everybody, your taxes pay for fuck all, by the way. That money that they're taking off workers is just a punishment to maintain the fiction that um, government finances work like households. They don't. That money's been removed from the economy and destroyed. But if you want to learn more about that, go back to one of our previous podcasts with Stuart and others on modern monetary theory. That's my thoughts of the current um, economic situation, lads. Um, it all does seem to be going slightly tits up. Stuart, what did you want to comment on, mate, before we carry on with our, our core concepts of the stock market? A lot of interesting stuff going on at the moment. Uh, first, Friedman did admit that pretty much everything he said was bollocks. <laughs> this MV equals PQ thing, to be fair to the guy. He did say, yeah, basically, I'm not going to go too much into the quantity theory of money here, but he basically said that if you increase the money supply, the velocity, the speed at which people spend that money, the V bit in the MV equals PQ equation, stays the same. Uh, and therefore, the Q bit, prices, P equals prices, Q equals quantity. The Q bit didn't change because the government wasn't able to go ahead and change economic activity, which is bullshit. Therefore, P had to change. Recent experience has shown that uh, you can massively increase the money supply. This has been on since 2008. Right, but there's been no inflationary pressure until recently, largely due to a bunch of one-off factors. Uh, the market certainly does not think that inflation is on the way. If you look at uh, stuff we've been talking about earlier today, investors in European junk bonds, this is from today's FT, have begun accepting interest payments that are lower than Eurozone inflation levels for the first time. So basically, uh, European high-yield bonds, i.e. risky risky assets as far as bonds go, uh, the yield was pushed down to 2.34% this week. Now, bonds are fixed income, all right? So if I have a, a bond worth 100, uh, it pays me a five or a year, that's the coupon, yeah? All right, so it's 5% uh, is the regular coupon on that bond. If the price of the bond goes up, then the yield goes down, yeah? That, that makes sense, okay? So. These bonds are in high demand, hence the yield on them has gone down to 2.34%, which is less than the current inflationary expectation of 3%. So people are buying risky bonds. Is this all making sense, yeah? People are buying risky bonds, uh, with which basically gives a return less than the rate of inflation. So this is going to cost them money. So they clearly don't expect inflation to go up, particularly. Uh, and also, they don't know what to do with the money. They're in search of high yields. Uh, there's a lot of excess money around right now. The equity market has got to levels which I think people have now come to feel are unsustainable unless the government keeps on pumping more and more money into the situation. The recent sugar rush in the economy seems to have been curtailed. All right. Well, you, is, yeah, but let me just interrupt there because you did ask if, if we had a, a, in terms of asking questions, I want to ask that one question. So what you're telling us is that people are buying other people's debt hoping you know, and obviously when that people pay that debt back to them they're going to be getting interest on the debt all the time as their coupon or as their profit but now yeah. people are buying other people's debt knowing they're not going to get they're going to get less than they bought it for but what else do they do with the money see to a certain extent it's a little bit like how i look i look after my own modest portfolio i've got some in equities but i don't want to put all my money into equities because uh, like a lot of people i think at some point the equity market will take a bit of a dive so i keep a little bit uh, just in the bank and I'll keep a little bit in stuff like this, which is basically relatively risk-free. If I own, say, £100,000 worth of bonds, I don't, but wish I do for a round figure like that, uh, and they got a coupon of a fiver, it's good 
guarantee sort of income. I know that money will come. All right. So there's that element of the uh, yeah. So it's a short term. You're getting a short term kind of income from it, but long term you're going to get rid of that bond. You're going well, to sell it, it on. It's just less risky. Like if you look at what happened uh, to say my, I, I worked for NatWest for many years, and NatWest uh, used to go ahead and give us a profit share uh, in terms of shares. I used to take it always in cash, but my wife uh, insisted I take it in shares, and uh, it was actually quite a good little earner. About I think I had about twenty five grand worth of uh, NatWest shares saved up. Uh, in 2006, 2007, uh, which quickly became worth about two grand, and they're still worth fuck all night. But is there not a law in? Is there not a law that when government bond yields go into the negative, like historically, that that's that's a sign for a crash in the economy? Because not government bonds are supposed to be a place where your money is always safe. Why? Because governments always pay their debt. So if you hold government bonds, you're supposed to be that's some sort of secure income getting into the future. It's why pension schemes invest so much in bonds. But if that goes into negative yield. Surely, is that not a bad sign for the economy? Not necessarily. Now, when you look at the situation in the post-war period, I think uh, real interest rates were negative for quite a large part of that. That's how the government managed to pay off in a relatively short space of time such a huge amount of debt. Uh, the whole thing about uh, QE was you buy bonds uh, and that reduces the yield on those bonds. Therefore, it makes other investments, i.e. improper productive activity, worthwhile. Uh, so there's something to be said for keeping bond yields low. So these guys will go ahead and invest in something which is worth a damn and benefits the economy. But they're not, not, they're not, that's the problem, is that they're not investing in things that no. are worth something to the economy. They're just speculating more on the stock market with, the, with, with that. Sure, Sean, Sean wanted to come in there with a question. Yeah, that just might be a, a good time for me to jump in on the inflation question. Like, I mean, the reality is, despite the inflation uh, doom mongers, it hasn't been a problem for 30 years, inflation. Uh, there's Mark Kopelovich, I think his name is, uh, an economist. He put something up on Twitter recently that showed that like, inflation basically has remained at a, as a, at a low for, for 30 years. And part of the reason for that, of course, Stevie, you said organised labour has been weak during that period. And even as interest rates have been persistently low, uh, that cheap money isn't being invested in productive activity. And, and even now, with the massive amounts of money being pumped into the, the economy and the financial sector, there's been no major structural investment by the public or the private sector, no major investment in good jobs growth. Um, so inflation just isn't a danger. And I think the contradictions in the ruling class sort of thinking were captured by the Financial Times the other day. It came up, there's two headlines on the front page. One was a warning of the dangers of inflation could spark a new global financial crisis. And the other headline referred to the slowdown in economic activity and jobs growth. Um, so two headlines are totally at odds with each other. Exactly. And just to, um, again, build on what Sean said there, you've got to look at it in terms of the excess capacity in the economy. When you go back to the 60s and 70s in both America, Britain, most of Europe, unemployment was genuinely low. Uh, and so there was limited excess capacity in the economy. When the Americans paid for the Vietnam War, without increasing taxes and basically flooding the rest of the world with dollars. It led to big inflationary uh, pressures. We had employment of about a million in the UK. Thatcher increased it to three million is all part of a effort to go ahead and save the economy. Uh, but excess capacity was significant, or was, was minimal. Excess capacity is significant now across all the European economies. Right-wing economists in the, Ameri in the Americas said, Back in 2008, if you increase money supply by this much, inflation will rise to 7 or 8%. It was bullets. This whole idea of, uh, was it the non-inflation non 
accelerating rate of unemployment, this monetarist idea. This is also bollocks too. Uh, we have significant excess capacity in this economy. We still have about 1.5 million people on furlough in the UK. So whenever they come back on the market, as many of them will, uh, then we will have less of an issue uh, with uh, labour. Oh, can I also just say uh, right, that uh, regarding inflation too, commodity speculation. When you give these people money, uh, they will tend to invest it and speculate it in commodities, which can put the price of basic foodstuffs up. That is something whereby you can increase inflation, again, in the short term, uh, and you can fuel inflationary expectations as well. So this is a, a difficult and complicated area, but to simplify it to a certain extent, you have to look uh, at inflation, inflationary fears in the context of excess capacity in the economy. Sorry, carry on. No, you're grand, you're grand. We'll, we'll leave that one there. We'll come back to that one in the future because I think it's a fascinating area of study. It's one that it's hard to get your head around how inflation works, particularly because the last 40 years has been dominated, as Sean said, by that inflationary doom-mongery kind of analysis that Friedman gave us uh, in, back, in, back in the 70s. And he usually had... You know, it's like um, the reality of the, of the world and the reality of how the stock market behaves has destroyed most of those kind of shibboleths of monetarist economics. And we're kind of in a new phase now. And it's really unfortunate, too, of course, because we're in a new phase where we have this kind of once in a lifetime, once in a fucking epoch uh, generation ability to do something with government investment, with government money. And we're just not doing it. I mean, they're pumping trillions into the economy. You can imagine what that money could and would do if we had it. And for instance, things like just transitions and green new deals and all and green technology is just going into the stock market. You know, it's just being used for speculative purposes. Um, right. Last time we spoke, we spoke quite a lot about some of these core concepts in the stock market that we wanted to share with people. Things like inflation, which is a which is a head melter. But the thing that we spoke last time about the bonds and bond markets or the gilts, I think they call them in the in the states, was that in Britain? I don't know. But anyway, and we talked about shares and what they were. We talked about derivatives. Well, we didn't talk. About, we talked about um, dividends and shares. So today we wanted to talk a little bit about another core market and that was the forex market or the foreign exchange market and something about i know very little about as you can tell um but uh, and we want to talk about that and we're going to we're going to come to you on that Stuart. but i do know it's linked to the idea of currencies and how currencies uh, work with each other and i know that it all changed dramatically in 1971 the nixon shock of 1971 we often talk about that it's also amazing how few people on the left know anything about this which is amazing because in 1971 when nixon broke the link between the dollar and gold, the gold standard as we know it, I mean, the world of money changed irrevocably. And that's fundamental to understanding the last 40, 50 years of capitalism as well. But of course, we know that historically, because money changes in different periods of history, this is what people can't get their heads around sometimes, including me. Um, and money, you know, it changes in history between periods of virtual money, and then and then commodified money, or, you know, gold and silver and other objects. And now we're kind of moving back into a period of virtual money and credit money which is in fact the original start of money, compound interest rates and, and accounts scribed onto clay tablets precede money or predate money by about 2000 years in Mesopotamia. So as we know from David Graeber's brilliant work, um, you know, credit money came about first. And then from about 600 BC through to about 600 AD, you had, you had a, a period of bullionism or bullion money or real money or, you know, silver and gold. And then the Middle Ages went back to virtual money. And then in 1450, we went back to bullion money in 1492, particularly with the discovery in America, it was all about gold and silver again. And, and we've this toing and froing between bullion and credit continues to this day, does it not? Because, I mean, even in the last 150 years, we've had Western capitalist economies jumping off and on the gold standard. Uh, it happened in the 1930s with Roosevelt. I remember, Sean, I think it was you told me. Remember that Roosevelt did it, didn't he, in 33, during the middle of the, after the Wall Street crash. He cut the link with gold because the Brits did it in 1930. And why did he do that? Well, because if money's not linked to gold and you only have a limited amount of gold, then you can increase the money supply, i.e. you can create new money and then spend, which is, of course, what Roosevelt did in the 1930s, Sean, and 
that there's, there's something similar, there's lessons in that for us today, is there not? Yeah, and that's happened. You know, the gold standard was in existence in the West, West in some form for, for a long time. As you said, linked the value of currencies to the price of gold, something which had a, an intrinsic sort of value, suspended in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash. Um, and then as part of the post-war Bretton Woods agreement, the value of the dollar was tied to the price of gold again. And international currencies, the price of international currencies were pegged to the dollar. Um, and the, the reasoning behind this was that it would bring about stability in, in the national financial system. It would stop up money flows and stop or at least restrict speculation. As you say, like that, that was abandoned by Nixon during the economic crisis of the early 70s. Because basically what happened in the, in the midst of the crisis, there were too many countries looking to exchange their dollars for gold reserves. And they're literally, hold on, they're literally holding cash reserves, right? And they're literally wanting to go to America to knock on the door of Fort Knox and hand over their cash in return for actual like ingots of gold. That's exactly what happened. States. states. I find that fucking fascinating. Sorry, carry on, Sean. I think the figure I, I remember reading was that the uh, the US had 12 billion in actual gold in supply. And the total amount of claims that were being made by states was 70 billion. So it was totally oversubscribed. And so course, Fort Knox was going to be emptied at this point. Emptied and then so. And it's amazing, isn't it, though, that it goes back to what we talked about on the first episode about this idea of gold and the, and the, and the role that gold plays in modern economics is still something that takes us back to fucking, you know, 2000 BC, doesn't it? You know, this idea that somehow having gold reserves is going to, is going to protect you if the world economy comes crashing down around us. Why were there, Stuart, to you very brief, just one quick question. Why were there so many American dollars all around the world in the 1960s to the point where all these foreign states had you know, cash reserves and dollars that they, that they could go to Fort Knox and knock on the door and ask for gold. What was all that American money? How did all that American money get across the world? The, the old gold standard basis sorry, in, the, in the early 70s, that gold standard basically collapsed because America paid for the Vietnam War by printing a huge amount of US dollars. Uh, and at the time, this was whenever the euro dollar market began and the famous Belgian dentist who would invest in euro bonds. And this was something which the Bank of England encouraged uh, London to become the centre of. Uh, certainly the financial repression which existed in the 50s and 60s, including foreign exchange controls, really did screw the city of London. Uh, and the Bank of England worked with the city to go ahead and restore London's global role. And part of that was to manage the big euro dollar market. And so they were just one hell of a lot of dollars around. Uh, and so, the, so the, the Yanks started printing and spending new dollars even really before the gold standard was officially broken. Oh, right. So they had to do it by that stage. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, certainly the late 60s, early 70s, the, 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 the world was flooded with dollars. And uh, even though exchange rates were fixed in those days, America had to intervene hugely to maintain the value of its currency on the markets because they were committed to exchanging an ounce of gold at a certain price per dollar. All right, so that was where you had the fixed element there. It was effectively a dollar standard, right? Which, but the dollar was tied to the amount of gold. Uh, and de Gaulle in 1970, God bless him, General de Gaulle had many, many failings, but he hated the Brits and he hated the Americans. So fair play to the guy for that one, because he took out a huge amount of French gold from Fort Knox. He actually physically removed it. Uh, and uh, that made people... It's not something out of a James Bond film. No trucks pulling up to the front door of fucking Fort Knox and loading loads of gold ingots onto the back of a truck. I mean, just it just oh yeah, it's absolutely insane. And of course, the amount of gold we, we discussed this I think a while ago. The, the amount of gold ever 
mind in human history would only fill two Olympic sized swimming pools. See, I don't believe that. I don't believe you. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm calling bollocks on that because I surely there's more gold in the planet over the last fucking 10,000 years than I've two Olympic sized swimming pools. I've questioned that with a couple of South African mates who know about this, and uh, they said, yeah, that's probably about right. It's one of the reasons why gold maintains its allure and its value. And how uh, is it How is it you get your hands on this gold, Stuart? You're a man who's in the game. I mean, can we, like, after this, can we have a little chat maybe about, you know, I've got fucking £1,000 in a credit union. I'm thinking of investing in it maybe, so I would like to, you know, do, do I just, days, got, I mean, can we do it on the internet? <laughs> you can. I can put you in touch with people. These days I would invest <laughs> in silver rather than gold. Silver also has a value, and I think gold is pretty much played out these days. Though it's a bit of a comeback lately with more uncertainty but silver is the better bet these days because i bought my partner a couple of gold pieces of jewelry over the years i think they're just fucking going upstairs and fucking raiding the jewelry box and melting them down and fucking i mean maybe i'll get a bit of a few quid from them on the on the on international markets but anyway look, back to back to this idea of, of gold and uh and you know and markets and what happened after 1971 i made the point before whenever as you said, that Nixon had to really break the link with gold because they'd already started creating new money that couldn't couldn't be held up against that. And so we went from commodified money, i.e. this cash that had literally a commodity value, if you like, to fiat money. And what do we understand by fiat money? And why is that so different from commodity money? And what did it do to the economy? What does it, how, does the, how does the economy change overnight? Well, one thing you get to exchange rates varying a hell of a lot. In, for most of the 50s, 60s, exchange rates were fixed to each other. And then we had the famous devaluation. Well, you guys don't remember, you're too young. But when uh, I think the pound was held to the dollar at something like 480, uh, and the government was committed to hold it at that level. It was seen as a side of national power and prestige. Uh, it was overvalued. So we built up massive balance of payments deficits. Uh, and in the end, Nixon had to devalue. A perfectly sensible thing to do. Not Nixon, Wilson had to devalue. So that sort of thing happened much more often in the 70s. Exchange rates varied, and it's a damn good thing that they did. Uh, the 70s is a much maligned economic decade. When you look at growth in the 70s, uh, it was pretty much the same as it was in the 80s. And in the 70s, we had two oil shocks uh, and the collapse of the international monetary system in the early 70s. But apart from a couple of very bad years, economic growth was about the same as it was in the 80s. But I mean, uh, I get the bit about devaluing the currency and how that kind of balances the different kind of economies yeah. against each other, makes them more fair, if you like. But in terms of what happened to money itself, in the 70s, you had the emerging then this forex market or foreign exchange market. So, so yeah. the, the fixed nature of, of currencies set at Bretton Woods, it's all blown to pieces. And now we have floating currencies against each other. And you yeah. get the emergence then, do you, of currency trading? Because I read somewhere, I think we have in one of our presentations, I say it, but I don't really understand it, in that by 1973, the daily value of currency trading was twice that in the trade in actual goods made in actual factories by actual labour. So you get this merge of this massive market of currency trading. And by 1995, apparently it's like 70 to 80 times larger than the actual yeah. mar shares market. That's the thing that's most fascinating to me. That what is the point of that? What is the point of the currency market? Is it purely speculative, or does it have any social utility at all? Right. Uh, let's come on to. Uh, I'll come on to that in a second if that's okay. The key thing about the foreign exchange variations, uh, right, is that you have economies have a means to adjust, which is something other than austerity. Right. And the whole point of the euro is effectively a return to a gold standard-like system, in which the only way you can adjust to say, if I've got more inflation in my economy, like Greece has, compared to Germany, all right, then austerity is the only way I can adjust to avoid continual balance of payments. Like so the euro, if you, if you like, is a gold standard for those economies. 
the, the euro is a disastrous return to the gold standard yeah and with effectively it's basically a euro standard and for the euro you may as well read Deutschmark. Uh, so that's uh, that was one of the significant things which happened with the euro because they were never particularly comfortable a lot of industry isn't particularly comfortable with uh, with floating exchange rates because it does cause them uncertainty i worked with british steel for a while uh, in the mid 80s and exchange rate fluctuations did screw them but a large part of british steel's recovery was because the pound fell against the deutschmark which made them more competitive and it rose uh, against the dollar which made its raw materials uh, much more uh, inexpensive. So it was largely luck to a certain extent. Big industry has never liked uh, floating exchange rates. One of the reasons why we moved on to the disastrous euro. So and back to your question about foreign exchange. The market is fucking huge. It's about, I think, $6.6 trillion a day is traded in the Forex. About 80% of that is believed to be people taking a punt trying to make money out of foreign exchange. The other 20% will be people actually doing foreign exchange transactions on behalf of corporates and individuals. I did a little bit on the spreadsheet because I thought I might be asked for this one. How do you actually make any money from buying other money? Say you come to me, you're a company and you want a million dollars in foreign exchange. You want a million pounds in dollars. Uh, if you come to me in the bank, I will go in the market. I will probably be able to get it for about 130. All right, so I will spend $1.3 million getting that money for you, and I will sell it to you for 132, an exchange rate of 132. Right, so I make so who are you buy Who are you buying that money off? Just another trader? Other, other foreign exchange dealers, people who hold the money, they could be traders or it could be other banks who trade in foreign exchange on a regular basis. But is this literally money that's used in the economy or is this, are these people sitting on cash reserves that they're mm -hmm. trading? People sitting in cash, if I go to a bank and say, I want a million, what they'll probably do all right, is go and borrow it from somewhere else. All right, this is where you're getting a hell of a lot of borrowing in relation to this, yeah. Uh, if I go to uh, uh, maybe say a hedge fund or somebody else, somebody else trading, they might have it available, but the chances are uh, they'll go ahead and borrow it from somewhere else. Right, and so they'll sell me $1.3 million, which I'll go ahead and give to you for $1.32 million. And so I'll make some money on that. So that's where I make a, a money on the spread, money on the spread. I read, uh, I read one day that in terms of foreign exchange and this buying and selling of money, which is which seems to me purely fucking speculative and casino-like, I don't see the social utility of any of this, but maybe maybe there is, maybe you can tell me, but that algorithmic or automated trading went up from 2% in 2004 to 50% in 2011, that 50% of this currency trading is not actually done by human beings, but it's done by algorithmic computers. And there was a blip, member a couple of years ago or something in, the, in, in, in London, in the city of London, there was a blip with one of their computers and it kind of it wiped off fucking trillions of values of currency uh, because yeah. the computer algorithm made the fucking mistake. I mean, that's something that should we, we should be worried about that, surely. And also, uh, what's, what is it, again, back to my first question, is there any social utility to the buying and selling of currencies? Oh, it's perfectly legitimate to go ahead and buy and sell currencies on behalf of people who are traveling overseas and people buying goods. Uh, or uh, buying goods, selling goods, um, and obviously hedging against their risk, their currency exposure. So there is a legitimate element to it. But uh, yeah, like I say, about 80% of this is going to be people speculating in foreign exchange. With the algorithms, they'll look at, uh, say, if the pound rises, say you have three currencies, the pound, the dollar, and the euro, right? And if there's um, the pound rises against the dollar, but doesn't make a, a, a commensurate movement against the euro, there are arbitrage opportunities there albeit for a very few seconds and the algorithms will try and exploit that uh, even then, even even down to seconds of changes absolutely, between absolutely that's where you get a lot of but this is where the, the financial sector does you fun. can't do this with a calculator then can you 
you could give it a try and people used to in the old days in the old days it was all about instinct and people would do uh, but now these days it's all done and this is the same with trading people look at to how different shares move in relation to each other basically i think it's called pairs trading and if the relationship by that between those shares goes slightly awry for a couple of seconds across different markets then you have very clever people who could be doing something fucking useful uh, very clever mathematicians engineers physicists etc uh, but they're writing a formula like this to exploit those inefficiencies between the market and make money for already wealthy people using arbitrage opportunity and this is one of the reasons why the financial sector fucks the rest of the economy and sucks mm. genuine value out of it because you have some very good people i remember one time i had to interview for new graduate intake when i worked for county Nat west because my boss at the time wasn't there so i had to interview them these were some seriously clever young men and women i was talking to physicists mathematicians engineers people who could have done something worthwhile but the allure i mean we paid them this is what 1992 we paid the fuckers about 45 grand starting salary in those days so you got someone like ICI is going to pay you 15 grand a year graduate intake. You can get 45 grand with us. That's what people are going to do. Sean, you wanted to come in, mate. I am. I can't mind what film it was. Was it The Big Short or something like that? Where uh, there was dozens of scientists, mathematicians, rocket scientists with PhDs and all working in this game, like because of the money that was to be made. But just come back to the algorithm thing. Eh? It's a reminder of how. You know, financialization and financial innovation has come hand in hand and has been enabled by technological developments like, you know, at every, at a, after every crisis and after, you know, associated with every new burst of, of innovation and, and economic activity and capitalism it is new uh, technological innovation and developments like, and they've come hand in hand. Just in terms of the size of the Forex market, I, I read somewhere that the current size of the global market it's 2.4 quadrillion. I don't know that's a real fucking number. Like, how many pints can you get that? Quadrillion, which is 20 times the size of global GDP. Like, so that just confirms what Stuart had said that you know, the bulk of this is speculative and debt field. Well, I do have a, it's important to raise that point about how, what these figures mean and how they link to the real economy, because people who don't understand any of this stuff, which would be me, often say, oh, that's not real money, it's not linked, but it is, there is a direct link between what's happening in these various capital markets and the real economy, and, and at some point there is a reckoning of these markets, and that reckoning is carried by, and the risk of all those markets are carried by us and carried by workers and carried by communities, and you have to remember that. In terms of that quadrillion thing, Sean, I don't remember where I read this and it came in one of our other presentations where me and you pretend to, well, we pretend that we understand all the things that Stuart actually understands about finance capital. And it's someone come up with a, the, the, the 2000 trade in derivatives, which is where we're going next, lads. And we've only got 10 minutes. The, two, the 2007 trade in derivatives globally was worth one quadrillion US dollars, which is one and three, six, nine, 15 zeros. And someone worked out what the value of that was. What was one quadrillion dollars in real terms, in terms of things you would buy and sell every day? And someone said it was was equivalent to 10 times the total production of goods on the planet over its entire history. Which I fucking, you know, so so uh, since we wandered out of Africa 200,000 years ago, anything we've ever made with a fucking flint tool or a bow and arrow right the way through the Industrial Revolution, times all of that by, give it a value, times it by 10, and that was the trade in one year of the derivatives. And that's what we're going to go to next, because people would often ask us, Stuart, what the fuck is a derivative? Uh, and I know that there is more than one type of derivative, and derivative is a kind of a catch-all term for various things that happen in the stock market. My understanding, it's probably wrong, is it some of it's like an extended chain almost of indebtedness, an extended chain of kind of risk-taking, but all of it 
dates back, does it, to actual equity markets and real shares in the um, in the in the in the commodity markets. So I know that I know a little bit, very little bit, extremely little bit about the futures market. That's a kind of a derivative that you buy and sell a product in the future, but at today's price. But tell us a little bit about derivatives and how important they are uh, in the modern economy. Right. It's a big subject. I'll try and go ahead and, and simplify it as much as possible down to a couple of things I remember from my time in this business. In the morning of October, I think it was October 20th, 87, the great crash then, uh, I worked for Climewoods at the time. We, I think we bought a put option, and I'll say what that is in a minute, about eight pence at 8.01 in the morning, and we, uh, and we sold that put option for a fiver uh, in the afternoon. And we made about eight million quid on the day because we had a lot of people in the market, old-fashioned stock jobbers, uh, that knew how to handle a bear market. It had been a bull market for about, God, about 10 years. So we had people that handle a bear market. Most people in the business couldn't. A put option will give you a right to sell a share at a particular price. A call option uh, gives you a right uh, a right to go ahead and uh, sell a share. Beg your pardon. So let me go ahead and tell this more. A guy called Gupta came to us. Uh, Gupta, we thought, had been tried and tested and due diligence had been done on his finance. I'm assuming you're using his name because you know he won't be listening to this. Uh, if he is, then I don't care about the cunt. He cost <laughs> us a fucking fortune, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, Gupta basically thought uh, that he could, he, he basically fooled people thinking that he had money. And he went to the main bank and they said, go ahead and get those fuckers in Climbwood. And he wrote a huge number of call options, i.e. he was selling people uh, a right to go ahead and sell shares at a particular price to him. All right, so if I'm Gupta, I'm selling you various options. So I'm giving you a right to say, sell me uh, at any point in the next three months, ICI at 50. And you were buying these options for a few pence here and there. So that, that put option is an actual contract then between Gupta and the people selling in the shares. Well, it's, it's an option. It's, it's a, it's, yeah, it's basically a right to go ahead and do uh, And I'm selling you this option to go ahead and sell me a share at a particular price. So I'm writing these options. Uh, you don't have to exercise it, but if you come to me with that option, uh, then I have to go ahead and fulfill the contract. Yeah. Gotcha. So, when the market was going up, things were going great. We're backing this guy. We're lending him money whenever we have to. We're guaranteeing his commitments. Uh, and everyone is happy. When the market crashes, a huge number of people have got the right to go to Gupta uh, and say, I'm going to fucking sell you all these shares at this price. All right. So Chrysler's maybe trading for about uh, fuck all. All right. But you've got a right to come there and say, you, you will buy this share of me for 50. Uh, and so it's impossible and in the end uh, gupta lost a huge amount of money we had to cover and there was a line on the accounts for about five years afterwards said the gupta effect uh, and that was a separate line to go ahead and show i think we should get gupta on and tell us um so, so it's almost like, so the story yeah because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i would love to meet the guy love to meet the guy so if you were trying to I explain to a punter, it's a bit like buying or selling a bet on a horse halfway through the race. Is that kind of where we're at? Is it in terms of your 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 betting on your you're buying and selling the opportunity the op option to buy and sell shares, but that share price might go up or down in the intervening period, so you're taking a big risk. Yeah, yeah you, you take a risk, but at the same time, if you believe the market is going to go up, 
all right then from my point of view selling the option it's fine because I, i'm not really taking i don't think i'm taking much of a risk all right i'm going to sell you this at a relatively low price but because it's a low price i can sell lots of them and this is the problem i my my commitment to the market or my my vulnerability to market fluctuations is highly leveraged all right because i might be able to go ahead and sell for a relatively small amount i might be a relatively small time trader like him uh, but people are prepared to buy uh, a lot of those commitments because it's a, it's a small price uh, and it's a good hedge for them. And it worked, all right, because people went to Gupta who were completely fucked. Right? And uh, I'm holding all these shares worth fuck all. I've got a right to sell these shares to you, all right, for that price. So uh, the derivatives market is dangerous in that um, one counterparty risk. Right? If I'd sold you those uh, those options, you could sell them to all sorts of other people and they would keep on going around the market. And these people wouldn't know that. In fact, it was me, uh, Mr. Gupta, sitting at my desk right behind an old fashioned 1980s spectrum computer who was doing all this bullshit. Is that why? I mean, that's why I mean, that's why Warren Buffett called derivatives financial weapons of mass destruction back in the early noughties, because he saw that market emerge and he saw that those extended oh. chains of of selling of options and selling to future contracts and sellings of, you know, swaps and all the rest of it at some point had to be paid back, I suppose. I mean, because debt, of course, and selling debt is a kind of derivative as well, isn't it? I mean, the debt market is a, is a market of derivatives. We, you know, and that's, and if you, if you're issuing debt and then you're selling that debt and someone else is selling that debt on who's selling it to someone else, you're selling it to someone else at some point, it's like past the parcel, isn't it? With the fucking ticking time bomb, because at some point that has to be paid back. I know that, um, with securitization of mortgages yeah people were taking bits of mortgages and slicing them up uh, and selling them and uh, the underlying the underlying transaction uh, uh, was all based on the belief that american house prices would continually rise and they have never done that they're not like london price right american house prices are always up and down like a who's draws as my dear old padre padre used to say and people thought this wasn't going to happen people thought that the price rises would keep on going up would go on forever i wanted to i think i may have mentioned this on a previous pod i don't know if i did but there's one example of what that looked like the idea of this repackaging and slicing up of mortgages and selling them on to maybe your pension scheme and it was a and i can't remember what book i got it out i'm sorry about that but it was it was called gsam trust 2006 which is year come out slash s3 and it was eight and a half thousand mortgages you know, wrapped up in one of these derivative instruments. And so that appears on your screen, doesn't it? GSAMP Trust, will I buy this? Will I sell it? And what the person was buying, the trader, they were buying this package of mortgages. Um, and 60% of the mortgage, if we found out since this article, I've studied this, 60% of the mortgages in this package were known as no doc or low doc. Yeah. <laughs> of that, which basically means no documentation or low I They don't even know who owns that debt or, or track that debt back to. And the loans, but those loans were actually given a treble A rating of credit risk almost zero. So there's people trading in debt they know will never be paid back. And in the in the game, I was reading that they called those those securitized packages of mortgages toxic crap or bags of shit. So that some of the traders knew exactly what they were buying and selling at that time. Would that be fair enough, Stuart? Uh, some of them knew, most of them didn't fucking have a clue whatsoever. <laughs> they sliced that stuff up so much that people didn't actually have any clue. There, there were various there were various shades of risk, various tranches of risk in there, but they were so mixed and fucked up that nobody could tell where the risk was, which is why nobody would go ahead and trade with each other or buy anything else from each other because they had no idea what risk they were taking on. Just, uh, I, just want, I just want people to know as well that in terms of Goldman Sachs, which issued that particular package of mortgages, yeah. after they were bailed out in America by that massive trillion dollar bailout, 
Um, it paid 953 of its own employees engaged in this activity $1 million bonuses before taking a four-week holiday. Yeah. They all went to Barbados or something, and they came back a month later and just went back at it again. But it wasn't just the, the thing about 2007 and the financial crash of derivatives and all the speculative activity, and this, these, they were selling these extended chains of indebtedness, was that they didn't finish there, did they, Sean? It wasn't just, what do they call them, CDOs, kind of collateralized debt obligations, were what the packages were called. But they didn't finish there, did they? Because... Selling debt, you'd think would be bad enough. They got there was other kinds of activities around that, and the, the clue here is Manchester United's insurance, uh, Man United's sorry sponsor AIG. What were they up to at the start at the time? Because this always fascinates me too. In terms of the, I don't know what they were called. Shoot, you might remember credit default swaps. There were there were AIG was one of the main debt obligations. Yeah, yeah, they were they were one of the main people buying. You know, if you're buying this debt and you're suspicious that the debt's a bit dodgy, you can now buy an insurance policy which covers you just in case the debt doesn't work out to pay, pay off in the, you know, as you sell it forward. So you can now buy an insurance policy called a credit default swap, which covers your risk on the debt. And what can you do with the credit default swap, this insurance policy? Well, you can sell it as well. So you can trade an insurance policy on your own debt, but also because of deregulation, you can trade an insurance policy on someone else's debt without them knowing. It's a bit like taking an insurance policy out on someone else's house without, you, without them knowing you've taken. And actually what suits you if that house fucking burns down because you get a payout. I mean... That stuff's fucking mental, mate. I mean, how can that be? And that's still that's still allowed, isn't it? That hasn't been re-regulated, has it? Um, to a certain extent, they have a better control over what's happening in the market now. I think there's been some there's been some fairly hefty shocks, but the control of the river, this market, certainly so far, does seem to be much better coordinated and much better implemented than it was prior to 2007, 2008. Remember, a lot of this is to get around various restrictions and regulations. Like a lot of this debt people were putting on was basically so they could do it off the balance sheet. Um, mm. When you look at PFI, PFI derived directly from the Maastricht, you know, Pirate Finance Initiative. That was basically taking public sector debt off the balance sheet. So it didn't show up uh, as part of the public sector borrowing requirement to meet European Union regulations. Just a bit of EU slagging off uh, there because people at the moment, including some people on the left, seem to blame Brexit on everything and regard the EU as a progressive institution. It's not. Uh, I know every Marxist I ever speak to always segues off into slagging off the EU in the middle of a fucking debate about something else. I'm pulling you back now, mate. Oh, oh, I totally agree. I totally agree with you, by the way. <laughs> but I'm pulling you back to... And the last question is that... The point about the debt markets as part of that derivatives market, this idea of selling on debt and having insurance yeah, policies yeah, yeah. on debt, all of this, that's still ongoing. And debt across the globe, I think you had the figure last time, Sean, that levels of debt across the globe are bigger than they ever were before. This is the point I was trying to get to. So that although, as you said, Stuart, they might have re-regulated bits of this, they're keeping a closer eye on it. Maybe the, 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 the ratings agencies are keeping a closer eye on what these packages are that are being sold. There's still an awful lot of debt in the planet, Sean, isn't there? That's being packaged up and resold and re and I mean debt's still being issued. People are still borrowing massive amounts of money. The government's still pouring massive of trillions of dollars and euros and 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 sterling into into these you know finance houses that are doing whatever they're doing with them. So this problem hasn't gone away, has it? No, and uh, I, th I think the global debt bubble now sits at something like three hundred trillion, which is like four times the size of global GDP, and. Part of the reason for this is uh, like obviously the quantitative easing programs that we've talked about where central banks are buying corporate debt, like trillions upon trillions of, of corporate debt. There's also been the, the growth of the shadow banking sector. So mm -hmm. as traditional banking sector with manners put, were put on the traditional banking sector for the speculation that they were engaging in and you know the speculative lending they were engaging in and their role in the financial crisis, as they were sort of tamed the shadow banking sector 
like stepped into the the void, and that has massively exploded over the last ten years. I think the shadow banking sector is something like four times the size it was in in two thousand and eight, and it's totally unregulated. These are just lo corporate loan sharks who are lending out in all sorts of directions for all sorts of speculative activity. Yeah, and that, and that's the issue here, isn't it? I suppose is that you know derivatives debt debt markets as a kind of derivative because you know you're, if you think of a, a debt as debt is you're, you're being paid back in the future if you hold someone's mortgage you're hoping that person comes in every month and pays their mortgage off and you get a, the capital repay but also the interest is your profit so it's a it's a futures market of a kind isn't it debt because they're constantly paying it back but how far into the future would you have to go for 300 trillion to be paid back this is the issue how big an economy would the world have to have and how how active with that economy have to be how successful that economy has to be in order to pay back that 300 trillion that 300 trillion is never being paid back that's the point here isn't it? i mean michael hudson said i may have said this before i apologize if i did that debts that debts that can't be paid won't be paid and that 300 trillion dollar debt will never be paid off and so if i take us back to mesopotamia 2000 bc and biblical and you know the biblical interpretations of the bible and so on you're looking at debt jubilees again aren't you which was part of that it's in the Bible, isn't it? It's in like some of those Syrian and uh, Mesopotamian societies that debt became such an issue in those societies that every now and again, if a king came in, the first thing he did, he wiped the debt, the debt jubilee. Are we, are we, are this is our last question. Are we seriously looking at the potential of that in the next 10 years or not? Will that ever happen? Are we ever going to start wiping out people's debt? Stuart, to you. I think when you look at the history of uh, capitalism and the history of the global economy, a lot of it is what happens in between debt and financial crises. Um, when you look at the history of capitalism um, in the States, America and Europe, it's punctuated by serious problems with banks. 1914, there was a huge run in the banks then. Uh, we heard about 1920s and 30s. I remember as a kid, uh, the secondary banking crisis in the 1970s and of course 2008. Um, also, I remember Bering Brothers, the crisis that caused. I mean, I was in the banking sector then and behind the scenes, an awful lot of work was done uh, to resolve the issues caused by the collapse of a relatively small bank, which was causing major problems. I sat down with a guy called Robert Park in that West in 94 or 95. Very interesting guy, Robert Park. That West sacked him because he was uh, a little bit too savvy, I think. And uh, he said to me then, there's just too much debt around. You look at the, the, the debt that Nat West as a bank had with other financial institutions, including other banks. He said, every individual little bit of debt might be wholly justifiable. When you look at it in the round and you look at the systemic problems which are caused by that amount of debt, it just takes one small problem in the system. And there's this um, metaphor they use about sand pyramids. You take a pyramid of sand and you drop another little bit of sand on it and it causes the sand to fall down. It can handle one, it can handle two, it can handle three. If it's, if four of these pyramids of sand drop at the same time, right, then the whole pyramid goes. Uh, and maybe one shock to the system, it can survive. If a couple happen at the same time, or very close to each other, things can go. Uh, and I have no doubt that at some point there will be some major crisis. Uh, looking at the, uh, the derivative structures again, Archegos a few months ago, I think we talked about this at the time, this was a derivative structure called total recall swaps. I won't go through how the structure works, but it's an ingenious structure designed to get around lending restrictions uh, and exposure commitments of banks to the stock market. Archegos, the company, had about 10 billion of its own money. It's a private equity fund, but they leveraged it up to managing 30 billion, right, through various total recall, total recall swap structures with about five or six different banks. 
The different banks did not know the extent of the other bank's exposure to Archegos. So whenever things went tits up for this company, the banks, in particular Credit Suisse, got shafted. And Goldman Sachs, who we mentioned earlier, they got rid of their holdings nice and quick and happily shafted other banks too. Credit Suisse lost about five, I think about five billion, sorry. Yeah, they lost five billion on that transaction. Now, we got away with it at the time, right? But that's an awful lot of money. And it doesn't take a few, a few more of those things happen at the same time. That's when you have a problem for the, the bank. whole eye for a systemic problem to occur within the financial exactly. sector, which is what we're and waiting one, for. I'm sorry, one last thing too. Interest rates are incredibly low right now. All right, and so the amount of debt is fucking huge. If interest rise at one point and it has an impact on property prices, the banks are about 80% into the property. I think 80% of the bank's loan book is property related in some way or the other. So one of the reasons why they're doing the best to keep interest rates low now, if there's a serious rise in interest rates, property assets get revalued, then the banks can be shafted again. So yeah, we are very close. I think that's kind of people trying to pay those mortgages as well, of course. And that's kind of, I mean, that, that's that's when it, the link round to the real economy and real lives becomes a, a serious issue yeah. here, which is why yeah. we will return to the idea of of global debt and debt jubilees because um and you know people come here for their good news because we know there's another crash coming. I suppose it's a case of when and how that happens. You know, um, uh, we, there's one thing we didn't talk about, and we're going to leave it for another podcast because there are other shenanigans going on in the stock market. We haven't got time because we've gone overtime actually. Uh, and I know it's one of your favourites, Stuart, as well, is share buyback. So we'll do that next time, along with some other interesting bits and bobs. Um, that's it for the moment for this podcast. Thanks very much for tuning in. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, we do have a platform of podcasts called Left Block. Uh, you look, look it up on Patreon. It's Left Block, L-E-F-T-B-L-O-C, Block, no K, dot com. Uh, we can contribute a few quid and keep uh, there's four i think there's four podcasts on that platform at the moment there's the week at work there's null and organized language podcast there's trademark belfast podcast and there's um the abc's of green politics which looks at the, the well this looks at it's kind of looks at climate doom and the and the end of the planet so thanks very much for your listening today we're back to you soon take it easy slangle foil that comrades was trademark belfast thanks so much for listening in we'll see you soon either in the trenches or on the victory parade Upper workers and slang of foil.